Welcome to the Creative Pen Podcast. I'm Joanna Penn, thriller author and creative entrepreneur, bringing you interviews, inspiration and information on writing, publishing options and marketing ideas for your book. You can find the episode show notes, your free author blueprint and lots more information at thecreativepen.com and that's pen with a double N. And here's the show. Hello creatives, I'm Joanna Penn and this is episode number 513 of the podcast and it is Sunday the 25th of October 2020 as I record this and yes I'm back from my six day pilgrimage, I made it. More of that in the personal section. So today I'm talking to Tim Wagoner about writing horror appropriate in Halloween week. Tim has a fantastic new book out, Writing in the Dark, on everything you need to know about writing in the genre. But of course, writing craft tips are always useful, whatever genre you write in. So we talk about exploring the darkness within ourselves, how to elevate horror writing to a literary level and a award-winning level, and how to be original while still respecting the tropes of the genre. Now, Tim, is prolific and multi-award winning and also writes within TV and film worlds. He's also a professor of creative writing, so he really knows his stuff. And uh, so that is coming up. So lots in publishing news today. Bookwire released a report on Listen and Read, a report about key audience behaviour in the age of e-books, audiobooks and podcasts, as reported by Publishing Perspectives and presented at the Frankfurt Book Fair. So the upshot of this report, it's an interesting report, it all supports all the things I've been saying for years, but it's great to see some actual data because obviously I mainly just talk from my own opinion. <laughs> but this report says ebooks, audiobooks, and podcasts have now become mainstream. People often use two or three of these media in parallel. They are complementary media interacting in a mutually reinforcing manner. And as one of these types of consumers, I completely agree. I will often find an ebook I like and then I'll buy it in audio if it's non-fiction because I prefer to listen. Then I might go and listen to podcasts with the author for a different or a more up-to-date angle on something. Or I might hear someone, an author, interviewed on a podcast and then go and buy their ebook or audiobook, depending on... I still read fiction in ebook and for non-fiction I listen in audiobook and I also tend to buy hardbacks with um, non-fiction now or paperbacks. That's my behaviour as one of these consumers and I absolutely think that we have to consider ebooks, audiobooks and podcasts as complementary media, not uh, cannibalising but mutually reinforcing. And the other thing was interesting is the generational shifts between things. So Gen Y, which is so Gen Y, which are the millennials known as millennials, Gen X, which is me, uh, people in their 40s generally and early 50s are usually heavy users of these types of media. Gen Z, born after 1995, would rather pay for access in subscription models over individual purchases. So this is really interesting. And as I've been talking about subscription models in the last couple of weeks, and it's certainly something that's coming up a lot in the author industry, is that, yes, subscription models are only going to continue to get bigger and bigger. Also, positive uh, news. So, Written Word Media produced a report on the ebook market during COVID 19, which is clearly not over yet. <laughs> But the trends are clear. They note that there has been a greater click growth on their promotional emails, an increase in overall reader engagement. As people across the world were locked down, they turned to ebooks for entertainment. And as bookstores were closed and they couldn't get access to getting books that way, although, of course, you could still get print on demand delivered, they say ebook sales surged as readers turned to convenient and immediate delivery. Kindle sales on Bargain Booksy grew by 18% in March and have remained elevated at approximately 25% above January levels. And also an average reader is purchasing 30% more in ebook units per month than in pre-pandemic times. So I think that's really good news. More good news. I'm just full of, I'm just very positive at the moment. And in a world where there's just so much negative news, I'm consciously focusing on positive news here. (laughs) So 
Good news for digital library borrowing, as The Guardian reports that library ebook lending surges during lockdown, up 146%. Library online membership in the UK increased more than sixfold during lockdown, with demand for ebooks and audiobooks one of the main drivers. Digital borrowing is not just an early lockdown fad. After experiencing an, exper- an, an initial surge, the higher level of demand has been sustained. And this is totally true. I think all of us went through that point in our life where we discovered how these new media fit into our life, like podcasting, for example. You're listening to this because at some point, maybe someone said to you, hey, you should try listening to podcasts and then you make them part of your life. This is really good news. So that's reported from The Guardian. And I wanted to um, say thank you to on Twitter, Christopher Booker Services or Booker Services said, Joanna, I found your work via library subscriptions to audiobooks. Thank you. So there's an example of someone who found my stuff through library audio. And of course, remember, you can get your ebooks and audiobooks into libraries if you publish wide. You cannot if you are exclusive to Amazon for ebooks or audiobooks. So for example, through Draft a Digital, Publish Drive or Smashwords for ebooks and Find Away Voices for audiobooks. And please, if you are a library borrower and user, please consider asking for your favourite indie authors to be stocked in the digital catalogue. Now, we have a unique opportunity here because traditionally published ebooks and audiobooks are really expensive for libraries, whereas indie books are much cheaper. Now, I think hopefully librarians listening, if you're a librarian listening or you're a librarian, I think we just need to spread the word about indie books and in libraries. And you can drive library borrows. People are like, how do I market to libraries or how do I market to library borrowers? You do this. You say to them in your emails or at the back of your books, did you know you can get my books for free from the library? Just ask your librarian to look in their catalogue. So I thought that was very cool. More good news for wide publishers. Google Play has just introduced promo codes so that you can offer free and discounted ebooks and audiobooks without having to lower the price. So you can actually create 5,000 codes per campaign. So they're really like doing well with this one. That's quite a lot. (laughs) But basically, you can create the promo code campaign and then share the deal with a link to the Play Store and customers can redeem the discounted book. So this is a good way to offer your uh, readers free or discount books on Google Play without actually having to lower your price on any other store. Now, this is one way for wide authors to get more sales and more customers on these other stores is to offer specific discounts on that store only and uh, that can be a really good thing. So yeah, Google Play promo codes. So then some bigger picture publishing stuff. There was loads, obviously I've been away, so this is like two weeks of interesting things. I actually had to cull a whole load of news that I didn't think was that interesting, like the Barnes & Noble technical issues, which let's face it, just not interesting. (laughs) So I'm really just talking about the news that I find interesting and I thought you might as well. But Mike Shatskin writes about why Penguin Random House might want to acquire Simon & Schuster in an article headlined The End of the General Trade Concept. Uh, And I'll read some of his quotes and then reflect on them. But he says, "It, it is a fact that it is harder and harder to make money publishing a new book. While the path to successfully launch a new title has become steeper and more difficult, sales now happen on the backlist that could never have happened before because of digital publishing, print on demand and online sales. Penguin Random House has been very aggressive at building their digital marketing capabilities and therefore could benefit a great deal from acquiring Simon & Schuster. As big author advances are curtailed by consolidation, Penguin Random House won't have to pay as much to authors when they are competing against one or two other big publishers rather than four. Authors will find it possible and profitable to put their work in play without a big publisher. So he's saying a few things here in terms of the world is changing, in terms of it's much easier to monetize your backlist. That's certainly what uh, many indies find is that, yes, you can make some money on launch, but we don't care that much about launch because you can make more money over time with these backlist titles. That's certainly what I find. And uh, it's much easier to market backlist titles because you can do promotions and things. Uh, You've got a lot more reviews. So this is definitely moving towards the way that indies do things it's interesting the thought of penguin random house actually building this in in an aggressive way i hadn't really been aware of that but simon and schuster obviously not having done that 
He also says most of the books sold won't go through bookstores and diminishing shares of book sales will go to frontlist rather than backlist or to commercial publishers rather than self-publishers, upstarts or not publishers doing books. I love that, not publishers doing books. That's what's happening all over the place. Lots of companies now are doing their own publishing who would not be considered publishers. They're more like indies having their own company and then publishing books that support their company. Anyway, he says, in any case, general trade is not a term that is likely to make much sense to anybody 10 years from now that's a big change and of course I had Mike Shatskin on the show last year or something he has been in the publishing industry for years like 40 years his father was also in publishing so he has this very long-term view of the industry and essentially saying that things are really changing and that's been accelerated by the pandemic. And in terms of aggregation, if you didn't hear, I talked about this a while back when Simon & Schuster was put up for sale. I think it was at the beginning of the pandemic. And then, of course, that just went away for a bit. But clearly, they're still up for sale. But more aggregation in big publishing. Now, if you're not aware or if you're new to the industry, This has just happened over and over again. The last big time was 2013 to 2015, when the largest ever merger in publishing between Penguin and Random House. (laughs) There were a lot of layoffs, tons of layoffs, which always happen in corporate mergers at some level. So, for example, you don't need two accounting departments. You don't need two salespeople in this particular area. But it also means severe consolidation of imprints because, again, you don't need two sci-fi imprints, for example. And editors were laid off, author contracts ended, competing books just not published. And what it did mean for indies, I remember this time pretty well because it was the biggest, I'd never seen such a big merger happening in public and I knew a lot of the, I'd met a lot of the authors involved, uh, knew a lot of freelancers, people who went freelance. But what happened because of that period, the impact for indies is that we got an influx of fantastic contractors into the market. This is really that period, 2013 to 2015, is when the book covers started to become a lot more professional. If you look at book covers before 2013 in the ebook space, if you can even use the Wayback Machine or something, you'll see that book cover design was quite different. (laughs) And then what happened is we got these fantastic freelance cover designers, fantastic freelance editors, because so many of them were let go from traditional publishers publishing. So I would say expect the same thing to happen. If this merger goes ahead, we're going to have another influx of fantastic freelancers. And in fact, if you are listening and you are a freelancer, (laughs) then, then, you know, this is going to be an interesting time. If you are uh, an author who is published by a Simon & Schuster imprint, now might be the time to check your contract for what it might mean for your rights and start doing some investigation into that so you're not uh, blindsided when that happens. Now, it's also interesting that Chris Rush, who always writes incredibly insightful things, writes about the changes in the movie industry due to the collapse of cinemas due to the pandemic and how the era of the summer blockbuster is over. She says, there are very few new bestsellers and those who received bestseller money are as risky as a standalone summer tentpole film. So the blockbuster mentality, earning millions or billions in the space of a few weeks, is nearly impossible. And this fits exactly with what uh, Mike Shatzkin saying around publishing the bestseller blockbuster is probably over. And in fact, it was very interesting to hear some numbers reported. J.D. Barker talked about hitting the New York Times list with James Patterson on the Writers Inc. podcast, which is a great show. And the numbers that he talked about in order to hit the list were back in, what was it, 20, I want to say 2014, when I was one of a group of authors, we hit the New York Times with a uh, box set uh, back when it was allowed. It's not allowed anymore. <laughs> but we got in there before they changed the rules. And we sold 120,000 ebooks in order to hit the list. And now it, the numbers are a lot smaller, <laughs> basically. <laughs> so it's really interesting to see this shift in the market. So it, the blockbuster mentality is just not happening anymore. Chris goes on to say streaming services don't need to recoup in a few weeks before the film gets replaced with something else. The film can stay on the service indefinitely or for months or years while word of mouth takes over. And this is the indie author model and something I often struggle to explain to traditionally published author friends and people who are still in love with 
what publishing used to be back in the 80s and 90s particularly, they don't get it because the traditional publishing model gives you some bigger payments. You'll you'll get an advance and then you'll get maybe another payment. And then if you're lucky, you'll get some royalties. But it's based on these bigger, you know, small numbers of bigger payments. Whereas Chris says about in the indie space, the money comes in every month, not once or twice a year, not just after release. There is no big money. There's consistent money. And sometimes the consistent money grows into more consistent money. And this is exactly the point. I think this is where I'm on the same page as Chris. I often am. <laughs> But she says, is no big money, there's consistent money. And that's actually how I feel about my own indie career. Like I've just been away, obviously, and every day I could look at things if I wanted to and I would be making money without doing anything. And I'm so happy with that. It's it's like a salary. I basically get a salary every month with my backlist without having to do very much with it anymore. Of course, I have over 30 books and it's taken a decade. But hey, what else do you want to do with a decade? <laughs> so Chris ends her article with, we need to let go of the models we grew up with and figure out how to step into the future. And of course, I always say this and I've been thinking a lot about the next decade. I, be- I really believe the 2020s are going to have the biggest societal, cultural, technological change that we have ever seen. Like we have not even started yet. I really believe this next decade is a big one. And the acceleration of digital and technological changes during the pandemic that I've been keeping an eye on, it's been breakneck speed like seriously breakneck speed of change so fast. I have kept so many articles, but then I've not reported on things because things have changed within a week. Yeah, I'm excited. As you can tell, I'm always excited about the future. And uh, I really believe that this will be a very interesting time. And I intend to surf the change, not drown in it. And I hope you'll stick with me, creatives. Yeah, and I am going to do, I've put a stake in the ground. I'm going to do another AI one in a couple of weeks time it will be before christmas it just i just need to say on this date i need to stop collecting information and just write it <laughs> okay i hope you've enjoyed that publishing news so in my personal update i am back from my 6 day pilgrimage walk from southwark in london to canterbury cathedral along the ancient pilgrim way also known as the becket way which has been a pilgrimage route for 850 years since the martyrdom of thomas a becket the archbishop of canterbury it was 183 kilometers about 114 miles with a kind of average of 30 kilometers a day but i mainly did some bigger days and then i did some shorter days and i'm still pretty tired <laughs> To be honest, mostly the weather was amazing, crisp and clear and autumn sun and beautiful, either beautiful or interesting. There are certainly some gritty bits walking out of southeast London, but beautiful and interesting. And I have a lot of processing to do, so I'm not going to talk too much about it today. It's one of those things that, yeah, I need some time to consider what I really think. (laughs) I did write a lot of notes as I went. What I actually did is I would take my phone out of my pocket and I use my phone either to take pictures or I would just dictate a couple of lines into my things app and then at the end of the day I'd go through my app and my my photos and I'd write everything up by hand adding various things so I did that every day many people said was I doing it on my own yes I did do it on my own and I'm very happy I like being on my own and it was interesting there were some days I literally didn't see people for hours like I would stay in a and b and then leave in the morning and I was obviously wearing my mask and sanitizing and everything until I whenever I was in a uh, built up environment but then as soon as I walked out and up the trail and then I was on my own and I not obviously not wearing a mask out in the outdoors on my own for hours every day so it was and it's interesting because I'm a happy introvert and like being on my own but there were even points where I thought goodness I've been on my own a long time and I haven't spoken to anyone all day So it was quite interesting. But I, I'm really glad I got out because I feel like I've been shut in for a while. I'm sure we're all feeling that. And I did fill my creative certainly. And as I wrote into my journal, I walked myself into submission, which I needed to do because I get this upwelling of frustration when I want to move, like I'm someone who does move a lot. (laughs) So the upwelling of frustration at not being able to travel or go and see things or go and do things is dampened once more. And I had some 
great moments of clarity and also a lot of time not thinking because when you walk, I feel uh, at around 20 kilometers 20 to 25 kilometers is when you st- I start g- getting a bit more tired. And I'm like, yeah, between 25 and 40 kilometers, I'm not thinking <laughs> at all. I'm just walking and talking to myself and saying, just another hour, whatever. So yeah, it was a, a meditation of sorts. I, I was unplugged most of the time I did, and maybe a bit of time every evening just checking in with things. But it was good. It was really good, but too close to talk too much about right now. But suffice to say, I made it and I'm pretty proud of myself. It's the first. And I also I did a lot of navigation, which is something I haven't done for a long time. Pretty, and obviously I got lost a couple of times, not really lost, just off track. But very interesting. I will be doing a books and travel episode on it before Christmas. And there will be a couple of books from it at some point in 2021. You can check out my pictures on Instagram or my Facebook page at Author, which uh, includes some stunning churches and architecture and graveyards, as well as nature, the lovely British countryside. And in the meantime, I'm back and have lots to sort out. I have the notes back from my editor on Tree of Life and also botany comments from author JT Croft. Thank you, JT, who's done a beta read based on his expertise. And I'll be focusing on getting those updates done this week and then going through proofreading, getting the book to my pen friends for reviews, out for print formatting. So I'm in that part of the creative cycle that we call finishing publishing uh, and it will publish on the 9th of December 2020 if you're interested in Tree of Life. So I also did just put out a solo episode on books and travel on Walk Your Own Race, Lessons Learned from Walking a 50 kilometer Ultramarathon. Yes, I obviously I did that about three weeks ago, three weeks ago or something, and it was partly a sort of can I really do this pilgrimage thing. But there are lots of different things that I learned doing that 50k that will be different to this longer multi-day walk. So that includes some life lessons, which are also applicable for writing. Uh, Obviously, walk your own race or write your own race is one of them, as well as tips on events if you're interested in that. So that is on books and travel. Also on books and travel this week, I've got an interview with Lauren Rhodes, author of 199 Cemeteries to See Before You Die, which uh, that book title is catnip to me. I bought that book when it came out and it was great to talk to Lauren. We talk about our favourite cemeteries trees and uh, graveyards and ossuaries and uh, if you want another Halloween special or you're a fellow taffophile lover of graveyards go check that out that's coming out this week Thursday 29th of October on my books and travel podcast also on podcasting this show won the digital book world award for best use of podcasting within publishing so now the podcast is multi-award winning which is lovely thank you for all your support So thanks also for your emails and tweets and comments. Thanks to Greet from Germany or Grit. Photo, she sent a photo from the Great St. Bernard Pass in the Alps, gorgeous snowy mountains. And thanks to Christine Schuck, who sent pictures from her artist's date at a local cemetery. Obviously, always a good place to think and consider what you want out of life. Also, really lovely tweet from A.M. Jeeva, I think it is, A.M. Jeeva, says, uh, I've just discovered your podcast and it feels like so many doors that I didn't even know were there have suddenly opened around me. I have to pick where to start, but I feel very grateful to have found this resource. And this was such a great uh, tweet to get because I feel like sometimes those of us who've been around a while and even if you've only been in the indie space a year or two, you can feel like, why don't people get this? Why don't I don't understand why authors are not more empowered. You are the creator. You are valuable. Your work is valuable. I just don't understand some of the attitudes that are around. And then you realise that people need to know this information. And I I sometimes feel like in my world, everyone knows this stuff. And then you realise that people don't realise this stuff. So I want to encourage you, if you're if you feel empowered by your author journey, then talk to other authors, talk to other creatives, it's this is the real this is the real mission i think it's about empowering creatives to take control of their career that's what i want the creative pen to be in fact I've, i'm still thinking about maybe doing some redesign of the website around that message but who knows <laughs> got so many things I want to do. In the meantime, you can tweet me at the creative pen or 
leave a comment on the show notes or email me joanna at thecreativepen.com let me know what you think of the show send me a picture of where you're listening in from or any aha moments that you've had that would be fantastic so today's show is sponsored by Reedsy. Do you need a cover designer? Do you need an editor? What about some marketing help or an author website or a translator if you're thinking of going that way? Would you like to work with a vetted professional who specialises in working with authors? If yes, then check out Reedsy through my link, thecreativepen.com forward slash Reedsy, R-E-E-D-S-Y, and have a look at their marketplace of fully vetted professional freelancers. You can also find a lot of free tools like the Reedsy book editor which will help you format your book they have free lists of book bloggers by genre as well as free online courses on everything from facebook and amazon ads to writing romance creating audiobooks how to get media coverage query letters and more basically a ton of great free resources for your author career and they can match you with professional freelancers to help you on your author journey and help you make your book the best it can be. So check out Reedsy through my link, thecreativepen.com forward slash Reedsy. So this type of corporate sponsorship pays for the hosting, transcription and editing But my time in creating the show is sponsored by my lovely patrons. Thanks to everyone supporting the show on Patreon. And thanks to new and returning patrons this week, Megan, Janita Key and Simon Huggins. <laughs> thanks to new and returning patrons this week, Megan, Janita Key and Simon Huggins. I really appreciate your support on Patreon and to everyone who supports the show on Patreon, you are fantastic and I know that you want the show to continue as we head inexorably towards episode 600. <laughs> so, which is just crazy. So I really do appreciate the support on Patreon and you can support the show with a couple of dollars a month, less than a coffee a month, that's all. And you can, as I always say, you can pop away and pop back. You don't have to commit forever. Uh, you can get the extra monthly Q&A audio, which I recently sent out, and uh, you'll get the entire backlist so you can learn learn loads more and uh, you get to ask your personal questions and I, I answer them the best I can. You also get 10% off my online courses. You can support the show at patreon.com, p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com forward slash the creative pen. Let's get into the interview. Tim Wagoner is the best-selling and Bram Stoker award-winning author of over 50 novels and seven short story collections across dark fantasy and horror, as well as writing media tie-ins. He's also a professor of creative writing at Sinclair College in Dayton, Ohio, and his latest book for authors is Writing in the Dark on the Craft of Writing Horror Fiction. Welcome, Tim. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's great to have you on the show. So start off, tell us a bit more about you and how you got into writing, as well as why you decided to focus on horror. I'm not so sure I got into either. It's just they were a natural outgrowth of myself. I was been interested in all kinds of scary things since I was little. I remember one of the first movies I remember watching was Frankenstein Meets the Wolfman, and I was probably three or four. My mom and dad were watching it with me back when he just these things would show up on TV occasionally. You couldn't choose them like you can now. And why they let a four-year-old watch this thing, I don't know, but I was absolutely fascinated with this movie. And I've been fascinated with monsters ever since. In terms of writing, it's the same thing. I used to make up stories all the time. Mostly they would be like tiny little sort of impromptu plays like with people I'd be playing with friends and such or maybe like with uh, the toys and action figures I'd have around uh, sometimes for hours I'd make up these little stories and act them out as time went by it was just natural that these two things I think would just blend together and have me end up writing horror I find horror to be a wonderful blank canvas because you know in the shadows you can imagine anything could be there and I think it lends itself to fiction for that reason it is interesting that your parents let you watch scary movies like that. I think I was, I think E.T. was my first scary movie. And I remember hiding behind the couch, you know, age, I must have been seven or eight, I think, when E.T. came out. But yeah, that's crazy. So it, it started really early for you. Yes, it did. And my parents allowed me to read all kinds of horror comic books and never censored anything that I read. Didn't worry about it too much. And I'm not really sure why. I guess I think they just I know my dad was big into science fiction and fantasy, not so much horror, but I think that because of that, he was a lot more tolerant of just letting us read whatever we wanted as opposed to monitoring what we read and watched. 
I think that's interesting. I feel like um, I'm happily child free, but I do feel like there's a bit of a taboo at letting children read horror. And is that something because you're a professor of creative writing, you teach young people, obviously not little kids. (laughs) But do you encourage um, people to read whatever they're interested in at, at any age? Or do you think that the way horror is now portrayed that it is should be for older people? I guess it depends on the level of horror because it's horror is like a buffet. There's so many different choices available. I think that because, especially with the internet, people can access some pretty extreme horror if they want to, that parents might, you know, of children who are below 18 or whatever, or at least below their teens, preteens, I think that parents should probably be a little more careful about what they what they read or what kind of like a material that they're consuming. But otherwise, no, I think it's pretty healthy for people to just graze and sample all kinds of things and then see what speaks to them. And different things will speak to you at different times of your life. I think you're right. And it's funny because I love the title Writing in the Dark. In my experience, horror writers are some of the nicest people out there. And I love your title Writing in the Dark. So I wondered, uh, why is writing our darkness on the page so important? My wife is not a horror fan at all, but she loves to go to horror conventions for that reason. She says horror people are the nicest people that she's ever met. And I had a student ask me once, she said, you seem so pleasant. How can you write the kind of things that you do? And I looked at her and I said, what do you think keeps me so pleasant? There's uh, there's something to be said for getting out you know, all kinds of things that are in us. I think in a lot of ways, writing our darkness allows us to map it and explore it. And when you do that, it doesn't have as much power over you. You're not afraid to think things that uh, might be considered dark or you're not afraid to confront whatever kind of negativity might be inside you. It it loses its power in a lot of ways. So I I think it's a catharsis, a kind of exorcism through entertainment, which I think it really makes a, a huge difference. I can't imagine what I'd be like if I didn't write this kind of stuff. (laughs) Yes, it's almost like when you write it and it's on the page, you've written a lot of books and I haven't written as many as you, but I've forgotten what I've put into books. It's almost like once you've written it, it's gone, it's out of your head. Do you have that same experience? Yes, I do. And it's weird sometimes when you find yourself accidentally repeating and you don't realize that you used kind of a story structure, a situation or a character type in a book before, just because you don't remember it's also weird answering questions about books. I remember for when I first started going to conventions and listening to writers on panels and they say something like, oh, I don't really remember writing that book. And I think, how in the world could anybody not remember writing a book? And I don't remember a lot of the stuff that was in my books. And people ask me a question about it. I'm like, yeah, sure. Yeah, I meant to do that. I have no memory of doing that. That so, yeah, actually it's, makes it's, me feel better. Yeah. <laughs> Glad to I think hear it's you really normal. That. I think it's yeah. really normal. Yeah, oh, that's good. So then I guess the question on writing our darkness is, how do we stop ourselves self-censoring? Sometimes we might be thinking something and we're like, I want to put that in a story, but what if my mum reads it? Or what if my wife reads it? Or what if my kid reads it at some point and they think that I'm some terrible person? So how do we write the darkness, but equally be really truthful? One advantage we have is that the, the people who love us won't change their reading habits just because they love us. Your family probably, unless they already love horror, they probably won't read the stuff that you write. They, they will support you in it. But it's just like any other profession. Your family doesn't follow you to work and watch you the entire time you're at work. They'll listen to you tell stories about it. They may be proud of you because of what you do, but they don't experience it the same way that either your customers or your clients or in our case, our readers do. So I feel perfectly free to put anything at all about my family and friends in my work, disguise it a little bit, but I don't worry about them reading it. My oldest daughter did read one, try to read one of my books and she got to a scene. I had written it when she was very little, but she's probably 20 or so when she decided to read it. And she got to a scene that was set in a park that she used to go to when she was a child. And it happens to be one of the most extreme scenes I've ever written. And she just stopped reading at that point. She's like, I'm done. <laughs> I asked her if it changed the way that she looked at me. And she said, not really, because I know it's just imagining and it's, you're my dad, but I don't want to read that stuff. So I don't mm. worry, I don't worry about it too much. I do, I do think about disguising it to a certain degree, just in case. And also because I want to have the, the freedom to treat it fictionally. 
to, I don't want to just write an essay. I want to be able to take an event or an idea or a character and make it my own. Yeah, I, I agree. And I, another question that I've people have asked me is, what if they, if you fictionalize something that did happen to you and, or a situation where you were terrified, it might not be the serial killer or whatever, but something happened, like the park you mentioned, maybe the terror of your child being out there in the world is it can make you scared but what if you write things and you feel like perhaps you're trapped in that darkness I think the question was from someone who really felt like I don't want to dwell on my dark past yeah and that's a that can be a real concern years ago I was teaching a workshop at a, a literary center and it was about writing personal horror drawn from our own lives and I was much younger and I had not been teaching workshops like this. And there are a number of adults there, but there are also a couple of of young teenage girls that were there. And one of them, when it came time to do an exercise, she wrote about terrible abuse that she had suffered. And we did our best to talk to her and try to get her some help afterwards and such. But what I learned from this is that you can't just pour things that happen to us onto the page necessarily and have it be cathartic in a way that creates a positive reading experience, entertainment experience for somebody. You really need to be able to find ways to channel that. And if you have dark things in your life that are too hard to deal with for whatever reasons, you don't have to traumatize yourself to create art. There's no need to hurt yourself to do this. It's okay to use your imagining. It's okay to go ahead and maybe very obliquely kind of glance at something that happened to you. So maybe there was a time when a a parent was very verbally abusive to you. You don't have to write that scene word for word. You can write a scene where your character is getting dressed down by a supervisor at work and maybe draw a little bit on some of those emotions, but you don't have to like wallow in your own darkness. Because for a lot of people, that would be re-traumatizing yourself. And not only does you know that not make good art, it's not healthy for you as an individual. Yeah, I think that's right. And I'm considering myself very lucky as a person. I've had a, you know, a really great life, but I write some dark stuff. (laughs) So I also wondered about your uh, thoughts on the type of person or is there a personality you think that is that would be drawn to horror and the darker side, even when life has been rosy? Yeah, my my life's been pretty much the same in terms of, although when I talk to my wife and say that my life has been without any kind of problem, she's like, seriously? So sometimes (laughs) I think that our lives seem normal to us where they they don't necessarily seem normal to to people looking in from the outside. But I think that there's a tendency to, to see whatever is not normal. Like the first thing I'll notice about anything is any kind of deviation of it. I'll notice the piece of lint before on the uh, shirt before I'll notice the shirt or the color, really. I see the lint first. It drives my wife crazy sometimes because she'll talk about, let's do this. And I'll immediately think of all the things that could go wrong if we don't plan for them or it just pops into my head. And I think a lot of people who are attracted to horror, I think it's on some level because it's not that we see the world in dark ways. It's just that we see the things that just strike us as out of place or not normal. And even if it doesn't provoke any kind of anxiety, it starts to stimulate your imagination. You wonder why is it like this and what could have caused it? What might be done to fix it? I also think there's just a wonderful delight and surprise that you don't quite know what's going to happen in a horror story. Not the same way that you might in the stories that kind of follow, a, if not a predictable pattern, like a safer pattern, like in a mystery where you know that even though all the bad things might occur to your protagonist, order is going to be restored in the end and the mystery is going to be solved. In horror, you don't quite know what's going to happen. I think that people who also like maybe, I can't stand going on amusement park rides, especially like roller coasters and stuff. If they put like a steering wheel in the first car and let me drive it, I might be okay. <laughs> but I cannot stand being at the mercy of that. But some people love those kind of adrenaline rushes. And I think those kind of people are attracted to horror too. Yeah. And I think the important thing to mention to people listening, you know, if they don't read horror, is how vast the genre is. I personally, I read mostly aspects of the supernatural in horror. And my favorite Stephen King books, The Stand, to me, the aspect that draws me the most is the supernatural angle. The fact that it has a plague that wipes out most of humanity to me is a small point. (laughs) 
beyond the, the, the more supernatural battle of good and evil, which is the, the horror I like. But what are some of the sort of subgenres of horror that people might think of? There's supernatural horror, like you spoke of, which I think a lot of people imagine when they think of horror. There's the psychological horror of somebody just as a human being who is trying to harm other people. Certainly in horror film, people love slasher movies, and for them, that's what horror is all about. There's psychological horror, where the horror can come from misperceptions people have or things that are happening inside them that they can't quite control. There's dark fantasy, which is where the horror element is there, but reality is a lot more kind of bendable in the way that it is in a fantasy. Um, A lot of Clive Barker's novels are like that. There's cosmic horror, which is the idea that the entire universe itself might be malign on some level, and that if we were to glimpse what was going on behind the scenes, it, it would be too much for us. There's a lot of horror that just is existential and what is meaning, what do we mean? Uh, there's science fiction blended with horror as well. Uh, super popular. If The Stand didn't have the supernatural aspect, it would definitely be a, superna- a science fiction kind of horror. So the, the really, horror is one of the elements that can fit with any other type of story, even a romance, as long as it turns out category romance, as long as it turns out happily in the end. It could be <laughs> a certain amount of horrific along the way. And certainly a number of adventure and horror stories or dark stories have a romantic element in them at any rate. Yeah, I think horror is not just broad, but it's super versatile too. Mm. And I think it's interesting because I feel like because so many horror novels can be standalone, that it also lends itself to literary writing in that the prize winning like you you're a prize-winning author award-winning author and when i read some of these bram stoker award-winning books to me it it moves into literature and much more than some of the other sort of genre fiction categories to me and obviously you're a professor of writing so where do you think horror is lifted into literature i think that, that since horror stories have been around for so long in literature, I think that it they were already baked into what people considered literature, as opposed to newer things like mysteries and science fiction. You know, there's a long tradition of folklore and legends and myth that have horrific elements. And even a writer like Poe is considered literary. When you go back and read his stuff, it's a lot of it. If it was just written in today's language, I don't know if people would think of it as literary, just the plots that he has and things like that. So I think a lot of it is just, like I said, it's just baked into sort of the canon of what people consider good literature a lot earlier than science fiction, I think, is is caught up pretty well in some ways. And I think that crime writing, mystery writing, maybe not category mysteries, but more like uh, crime writing and suspense, noir writing. Is, is gaining literary acceptance too. So I, and I think the fact that it deals with horror can deal with the darkness in people's lives or the darkness of life that sets itself up for literary themes in a lot of ways, because you don't really think of literary fiction as being happy and fun and chocolates that we might just eat for fun one after the other. I mean, you think of it as being dealing with some more heavy and weighty subjects. And I think horror is already primed to do that. That's a good point. So uh, I did want to ask you, because I find this fascinating. So what does make an award-winning horror story beyond something that might be not award-winning? So, And you obviously read a lot and you write a lot. And I know this is such a hard question, but how do we lift our writing up, up a level? Yeah, I think a big way is to, to to be concerned with the way it's presented, the style of it, the way the story is told. Not so much to try to, in a way that's not normal for you, but in a way that is attempting something different or new for you, stretching yourself to a certain degree. Probably the same with the concepts that you use, too. If you're just writing a, a story about a vampire and the vampire is the same as a million vampires that we've seen before in movies and read about in books. There's probably no kind of 
real, at least obvious, sort of artistic approach to that because you're not doing anything new with it. You're not trying to say anything new about it. So I think that it, it helps to think about the way you're telling the story and then what are you trying to say that's new or different in this particular story. It doesn't mean that stories that are entertainment-based and might just have a normal vampire in it that everybody's familiar with, that there's anything wrong with those. But I think the stories that tend to get recognized for awards, it's a matter of elevated craft and then also elevated ideas or themes. Absolutely. And I love getting the Bram Stoker nomination email and I will often go and just buy a ton of them and read them. I just found so many good books that way. And just really interesting stories and original stories. So then on on the other side of that, what are some of the biggest mistakes that writers make when they write horror? I think that, and this happens for beginning writers of all kinds, really, is that we take in so many more stories through visual media. Most of us, movies and TV shows, maybe thousands upon thousands of hours more than we actually read. And I think because of that, a lot of people, when they write, try to recreate the experience of watching visual media. And it's very different. Visual media, we sit, the audience, as passive receivers of all this information that is just given to us. And when we read, what we're doing is we're decoding information from marks on a page and creating a reality inside our heads. It's much more participatory. And I think that those two two ways of approaching communicating stories are very different. And so when somebody sits down to write and they're just emulating visual media, it's all just movement and sound. Uh, it's And it's all very detached as if we're not in anybody's head. We don't know what anybody's thinking or feeling. And because of this, it's just flat and lifeless. So I think that, and especially for horror, because horror happens inside a person. I'll tell people, if you imagine a monster hanging out in the the middle of a field and it's alone, (laughs) there's no horror. It's just a monster hanging out. It's only a monster when somebody is there to perceive it and be threatened by it and consider it monstrous. So we really need to be, to at least some degree, in our characters and showing what these characters are experiencing, putting readers into their heads. And I think that when you try to write it from the, the detached point of view of a passive observer, like in visual media, I think that's a huge mistake. Mm, so going deeper into the character who's experiencing whatever the horror is, but also going into the the antagonist, I'm thinking of the stand again, because I'm listening to it on audiobook, it's so long. The voice the voices of the characters are so different and the bad characters versus the good characters are such, but it's being in those characters that make it come to life as such. Yeah. It's difficult to write from the perspective of somebody who's quote unquote bad, because it's tempting to just make them stereotypical villains that are just, you know, evil because they're evil. And even if they are, it's a supernatural thing and you are in the head or at least where you get to hear the supernatural entity speak there's that same kind of temptation to make them just cartoonish versions of evil. And I think the more that you can personify evil to a certain degree, if you're not going to have it just be like in the Lord of the Rings where it's a force off stage, like Sauron's never really on stage at all. But if you are going to personify it, I think it helps to give it a little bit of personality somehow. And if you're going to be writing maybe more human-based characters that are bad, I think that you have to find some level of sympathy with them, empathy with them. It's one of the hardest things for me to do as a writer. And one of the books I had out not long ago called The Forever House, I decided I would take a character who was a, a pedophile and he never has and he never does in the entire book ever harm a child. He's, his whole character is fighting against this impulse that he has. But in order to write about it, I had to get into this person's head. So doing some research and just trying to be empathetic. And instead of focusing on what his obsession was, I just tried to focus on somebody who was wanting to do the right thing and having to fight something that he recognized uh, was bad in himself, was evil in himself. And so trying to find a level of some kind of connection or empathy, I think that if you're writing a human villain, even if they're doing terrible things, if you can find the part of them that is still human in them, I think that allows you to be able to write from inside their heads. I got to say, I 
really enjoy writing in my thrillers I really enjoy writing the villains who want to destroy the world and always trying to come up with new ways to destroy the world which is fun and clearly that's quite different to my good characters in inverted commas but I actually think I have much more fun with the bad guys who just generally blow a lot of things up so that's thriller but it is a a fascinating challenge I did want to ask though you mentioned the visual media and the fact that we consume so much visual media and for example I really do want to write a zombie book at some point but when I think zombie in my head I might think of the White Walkers in the Game of Thrones TV show or I might think of The Walking Dead and in that's what comes up in my head now also I've read Jonathan Mabry's books and Rotten Ruin and some of the World War Z and all this and then I think how on earth could I write anything original that would have a zombie in. So how do we take the tropes of horror and come up with something that actually might be original? There's all kinds of ways to do it. One one way is to reverse it. My zombie novel, The Way of All Flesh, the way I came up with a different premise was to have the zombies actually think that they're human or seem like they're human and not realize that they're dead. And so my main character is trying to figure out what's going on, where to everybody else they seem like zombies. So I just spun it around. What if zombies didn't think they were zombies? Other things you can do is is you can mix and match different kinds of images. So zombies for a long time were slow, and so then they got made fast, which changed things. Maybe you change kind of the, the way that they're presented. Maybe you make your zombies, and they did this in the movie of World War Z. They made them bird-like in the way they moved and clacked their teeth and such. Or you can make yours a cat. They're dead, but they still have like cat-like reflexes and behaviors. There's all kinds of things that you can do to just make things different. You just change the paradigm of it. Another way is to try to figure out what lies at the heart of a trope and then create something that embodies that might not be obvious. And the examples whenever I talk about this in workshops are characters like Jason from Friday the 13th. If you look at Jason and if you think about it, he's nothing more than the Grim Reaper. The Grim Reaper has a skull, which is a white face that does not move. It's for all intents and purposes featureless. Jason has his hockey mask. The Grim Reaper is in a monochromatic kind of robe and Jason's in a monochromatic sort of outfit. And the Grim Reaper wields a scythe and Jason has a great big machete that he wields. Uh, So he's just the bringer of death. That's the silent bringer of death that comes and we can't stop it. It just comes when it comes. Freddy Krueger is Satan. He's a demonic character. He's associated with fire. He torments people. His uh, knife glove is like a trident. And his face, even if you look at it, the way he's done is almost like a cartoonish depiction of a devil. And so he would be like the tormentor from the netherworld. And so if if you can figure out like a trope like that, you know, what lies at its core, you can basically put a new set of clothes on it. And it will, what's nice about that is then it has all the impact of the core nature of that trope without any of the baggage of it. So we don't have the the cartoon devils in our heads when we watch Freddy Krueger. We don't have cartoon Grim Reapers in our heads when we watch Jason. So getting to the, the core of a trope and then building your own sort of shell around it or a way to express it. And then taking, if you can also take like if a vampire feeds on people, you can turn that around to what if a vampire feeds other people as opposed to draining from them? What if it gives people something? What if there's an exchange instead of just it being one way? Uh, and you don't even have to call your character the monster of vampire at that point and give it a different name. It doesn't matter. By doing that, it would, again, you don't have all the baggage of the vampire trope, but you have the power that lies at the heart of that trope. So those are the kind of things I usually tell people in terms of trying to find something that is really powerful and new for your own horror. There's some great ideas there. And then I I guess the other thing with the uh, sort of lots of visual media is that people associate horror with the action, as you say. So his high body count, thus it must be horror. (laughs) So how do we take action and plot beyond just blood and death? I think that if you can think about the, if you have a character, you could have more than one, but we'll just talk about one. If you have a character and you think about what are the impacts of these events on this character, 
How is the character reacting? What is emotional, psychic damage are they taking? Where is the, these events pushing them? Is it pushing them to their limit? What is their limit? What happens if they go beyond their limit? Those are the kind of guideposts you can use in a story uh, as opposed to this person dies, that person dies, the monster does this, the monster does that. All of those things are fun, but the, what happens to the character? So it's really about, in a lot of ways, describing not a character's growth, but almost a, a character's, whatever the opposite would be, the breaking down of a character to see what then the character may or may not do at the end. And there, Midsummer is a good example of this because it's what really happens to those characters. And by the end, we don't know uh, which way the story is going to go, really, until that very last kind of image. And we finally see after this character has been broken down all the way by these events, what the events overall, it's almost like a math problem where it's, you have a sum total at the end. Although maybe I guess it's a, pro, a, a problem of subtraction. <laughs> we just see what's left of the character afterwards. But doing stuff like that, focusing on the character, the effect on the character as opposed to the body count. Absolutely. And then I wanted to ask what you think of the current publishing environment for horror writers. I, I feel like within genre that I read, these particularly supernatural ones, I do read a lot from particular small press publishers, but it almost feels like many of the big publishers might not go anywhere near horror. But then on the other hand, there's loads of what I would call horror on Netflix. So what do you think of the current uh, environment? I do think that that larger publishers are maybe just tentatively, but they are stepping back into to horror to a certain degree. Tor Books has created their Nightfire imprint, which is dedicated toward horror. And even though with COVID, the publishing industry has ground to a halt, right before that, publishers were starting to say, we'd like to see some horror. One of my books, Night Terrors, that came out from Angry, Robots a few year, Angry Robot a few years ago, is being re-released with a more horror-type cover. So I think publishers are starting to realize that there's a market out there for this. And I do think a lot of it is from streaming media, such as like things like The Haunting of Hill House on Netflix, and more kind of elevated horror movies like Midsummer, Get Out, that deals with social issues and things, where I think there's just a greater awareness, not only the popularity of horror, but of the potential for what it could cover. One of the big benefits, too, for the streaming media is that the this this the series can be if you have enough time you can they release the entire series at once so you can experience it like a novel which is a very different viewing experience from anything we've had before and i was speaking with mike flanagan who created and wrote the haunting of hill house miniseries right before he started to do it and we were talking about how that this media now allows you basically to create the equivalent of a novel in visual form and you get much more of a focus on character that way than you than you would maybe in a an hour and a half movie, so I, I think that the overall we'll see. It's really hard to say what publishing is going to do. Hopefully, once COVID blows over and things get back to some semblance of normality or whatever the new normal is, it's hard to say if horror is going to keep growing in, in popularity the way it was for a while. But the small press will always be there. It's what's wonderful about the way people consume media these days is that we can get whatever we want. We don't need the, the, the big companies to be able to distribute it to us. And so the, the small press has always been the dark beating art of horror, and it's going to continue to be the dark beating art of horror, regardless of what the big publishers do. And what about independent authors? Because many of my audience are indies. I'm an indie. I know a lot of indie horror writers, many of whom I think did have contracts a while back and then moved into indie when things really changed in the publishing industry, but are now doing really well because there's such a voracious audience for the genre. So when you're when you talk to people, is that something you're seeing in the community as well? Yeah, the, nobody cares where your story comes from. They only care that it's good. And I do this, I'm sure most people do this, at least they're horror fans, is that I pick up books because of word of mouth. Somebody will talk about how great it is and it's somebody's opinion I respect, so I check it out. Or I see somebody through social media, I read their posts, or maybe I'll see them in a video that they produced and I, they sound like an interesting person. I want to go ahead and check out their books. And so the, the technology has also allowed the individual to do for themselves so much of what we needed larger companies to do for us once upon a time. And the ability of an artist to go directly 
to his or her audience, I think, is just a, it's immense. So yeah, I think there's a lot of opportunity in probably all genres, but it seems like in horror especially, I think that just there are so many rabid fans looking for good stuff that they'll go anywhere the good stuff is. No, I agree. And then I wanted to ask you, because when I was looking at all your books, um, you've got lots of these media tie-ins, franchises like franchises like Alien and Resident Evil and Supernatural. And, and I wondered, like, how did you get into doing books like that? And what part do they play in your author business? When I was uh, very young, there was no, because I'm 56. So when I was very young, there was no way to watch anything on demand. The only time you ever got to see stuff was when it was broadcast and it may not be rerun. And so the only way to get more experience of your favorite characters would be through comic book versions or book versions. So I would read those and I would always be interested in reading novelizations because that allowed the writer to put us into the heads of the characters in the, in the we saw on screen and to develop the story in more detail. And I was always interested in, in that part. And as time went on, it just, I was interested in seeing what would it be like to work with a given set of parameters to tell a story. And also because just one of the things I try to do in my writing career is try as many different things as I can think of. I think that I think one way to at least maximize your chances for success is to try a lot of different things and to see what might work well for you or what might just ring true for an audience. So I just started approaching editors after I'd published a little bit because you need to have be published ahead of time before you can get a tie-in gig. And once I got into them, it was interesting because I, it was an, I started out in college as an acting major before I switched over to, to English and education which where my true loves lay. But one of the things about media tie-ins is it's like being an actor. It's like you're given a script and you've got to interpret the role or being maybe a script writer on a TV show where you're giving characters in a basic setting, but you have to come up with a new episode. And it just stretches a lot, a different kind of creative muscles for me. And sometimes it stretches different stylistic muscles. If I have to write something that's more action adventure oriented or something that might be more fantasy or science fiction oriented, and that makes it also makes a nice change of pace from the the darkness of horror too, because uh, I don't have to go into the same kind of uh, internal places inside myself in order to write it. And if people want to do that kind of writing, because I feel like there's a bit of maybe a bit of fan fiction in there as well. If people know the series really well and they love them, and they're also writing, is it is that something that, as you said, people need evidence of publication? But is that the type of thing that's still open to writers? Yeah, it's the, the, I've never had an editor that ever cared that I knew anything about <laughs> a property that I was going to write oh, for. Oh, really? But How interesting. They don't, they don't, they're happy if you do, but that doesn't matter. What matters is you can write a book. They want to know that you can write a novel successfully from beginning, middle, and end, that you've already done that. It's already been published. They also would like it if you've worked with traditional publishing because you can't just do whatever you want. You have, it's, there's a much higher degree of collaboration between you and the editor and then whoever at the studio or whatever it is who's in charge of licensed products, they have to tell you that you can do this, you can't do that. So you have to be really responsive and work well with several different people. When it comes to the content, you have, a lot of times the deadlines are short for these things because the publishers already have, like with a supernatural book, they usually, like Titan books, get a, a deal to do like maybe four or five and they've already got them all on their publishing schedule. And so once they assign authors to them, you only have so much time because it's got to be done by a certain time. And so the deadlines tend to be short. So they need to know that you can hit a deadline. So a, a lot of these things, it's like not an entry-level position, I guess it'd be a kind of a way to say it. It's If you're going for a job and you've already got five or 10 years experience on your resume, that would allow you to, to apply for certain jobs beyond the entry level. It helps to have already shown that you can write a novel, publish a novel, done it a few times, and that it helps. I think right now it helps to have done that in a traditional publishing field because that's where you know tie-ins come from. I've had somebody email me not long ago who said they'd written an alien novel and wanted to know what to do with it. And I had to explain it doesn't work that way. (laughs) Yeah, you can't do anything with that. Keep it real quiet. (laughs) Right. And the person was like, oh, that's fine. I had fun doing it. So thanks for letting me know. And that's the big difference in fan fiction because fan fiction, it's not official. And because of this, you can do whatever you want. You can create all kinds of fun stories. You can create all kinds of fun relationships. You can have people from different properties 
meet. I had somebody take one of my characters from a book series called Necropolis and had him meet the, the Benedict Cumberbatch, Sherlock Holmes, <laughs> in a bit of fan fiction. So th- there's a lot of constraints when you're doing it officially, licensed, when you're hired to do it, that I don't know if a lot of people who come up through fan fiction would enjoy, really, in a lot of ways. Interesting. Just to be clear, though, for people listening, you can't publish uh, fan fiction with other people's properties in. So you couldn't self-publish a book that features Alien meets Resident Evil. Nope. Yeah, you will. The lawyers will come after you. Yeah. So you can publish it for free on some of these fan fiction sites, but you cannot publish it properly and sell it. So just to be clear for people listening, in case anyone thought we were encouraging that, but no, absolutely fascinating. We're almost out of time, but just tell us a bit more about what is in the book, Writing in the Dark. It's fantastic. What else is in there? One of the things I want to do was to to write a book that would not only celebrate my love of horror and the genre, but also give back to it. I wanted to help people make horror that is not just marketable, it's not just sellable, and not just good, but it expands the genre, expands what they're able to do. I cover a lot of the basics about different aspects of horror, ways to make horror better, techniques and tricks to to write horror. I'll cover things from plotting to coming up with different ideas and different types of scenarios to writing scenes and generating suspense, delving into the kind of psychological aspect of horror and also the physiological. People get hurt a lot in horror and a lot of writing Writers aren't aware of what happens to a human body when it gets hurt. All kinds of practical things that you need to know and, and some other things as well in terms of eventually marketing it and trying to sell it. Hopefully it's like a, a, a nice overview of all the stuff that I've learned from 30 years of writing and teaching and just everything I could possibly give people to help them become better writers. It is excellent. And I got the ebook in preparation for this, but I have pre-ordered the print book because I'm like, okay, this is one for the shelf because it's got so much in. So I highly recommend Writing in the Dark and I know people are going to love it. So tell people where they can find you and everything you do online. The easiest place is just to go to my website. It's just timwagoner.com. And there is portals to everything, my social media, my blog. I have a YouTube channel where I do just video blogs. All that stuff is right there. So just timwagner.com. Fantastic. Thanks so much for your time, Tim. That was great. Well, thanks so much for having me. So I hope you found the interview with Tim interesting today. And I I read a lot of horror and I do find that the standalone horror novels that often can win awards, like it does seem much easier to win awards with a standalone novel than it does with a series. And although indie publishing success mantra is write a series, which is good uh, for making longer term money, writing a standalone may well be the way to look towards a genre award. It's certainly something that I'm thinking about because it's one of my goals. It's one way to approach it anyway. But certainly horror has some fantastic literary books. If you want to start reading excellent horror, check out the Bram Stoker long list and short list and of course the winners as well. But I always think the short list is a really good place to start. So next week, switching gears, I have an interview about hybrid publishing and the differences between non-fiction and fiction book marketing with the wonderful Wendy Jones, who is Scottish. So you will want to tune in just to hear her lovely accent. So happy writing, and I'll see you next time. Thanks for listening today. I hope you found it helpful. You might also like the backlist episodes and show notes available at thecreativepen.com forward slash podcast. You can also get your free author blueprint at thecreativepen.com forward slash blueprint. If you'd like to connect, you can tweet me at The Creative Pen or find me on Facebook at The Creative Pen. See you next time.